You are listening to Slaves to the Algo with Suresh Shankar, a show about AI, big data, disruptive technology, and strategies for your business to stay ahead in the age of relevance. Brought to you by Crayon Data. Hello, viewers and listeners. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data, an AI and big data startup headquartered in Singapore. Welcome to this episode of Slaves to the Algo. That's right, Slaves to the Algo, my attempt to demystify the age of the algorithm which seem to be taking over our lives, both professionally and personally. In this episode, I'm delighted to have Greg Palmer, a fintech expert, a columnist, a podcaster, vice president of the Finnovate Group, who, as we all know, is that real connector between traditional banking, consumers, fintech companies, and director of fintech strategy at the Informa Group. Finnovate actually does a lot of showcasing of cutting edge banking and financial technology algorithmic and otherwise through a unique blend of what they call the seven minute demo and key insights from thought leaders. Welcome to the show, Greg. Yeah, thank you so much. My pleasure. I really appreciate you having me on. And um, Greg, you're a podcaster yourself. And so I think what I hope to do is to have a very interesting conversation with you about things that you are seeing about how data and algorithms are being used by fintechs, by banks, you have a fairly global perspective. Um, and you sit in the hotbed of uh, technology in Seattle. So, but I'd like to actually begin the show by asking my guests a slightly more personal question. Uh, we're all affected as individuals, you know, we all love technology, we technologies in some form or fashion, but we're also affected as individuals by the development um, of data and AI and what it's doing. And so one of the things I'd like to ask my guests is, can you share some example of some really nice ways in which um, great algorithms or a data set as either has impacted your life either positively or you something in a fearful way? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is you're know, looking at our Finnovate conferences. It's really the first time that we kind of have played with uh, AI technology ourselves on a professional level. And, and this was really interesting for us as we started to see what was possible around intelligent matchmaking and bringing people together, you know, creating these connections between two individuals. Um, so, you know, from a, a professional standpoint, I think that's really been the artificial intelligence that I've seen that I've played with. And it's really worked wonders for us. And I know our attendees enjoy it as well because it lets them kind of get to these better meetings faster. They can kind of sift through a lot of things and connect with the people that they really want to connect with on a personal level, kind of outside of that professional setting. I think that, you know, the, the AI that... I really enjoy the most as an end user is the AI that I don't even really see, right? When I start to see something that I feel like looks like AI, it can be a little bit off-putting, right? It can be something where you start to say, wait, how did you get that information? Or how did you make that connection? It's the ones that you don't see that happening where um, you, you get these excellent user experiences, whether it's as simple as, you know, getting a song recommended to you, you know, hey, you enjoyed listening to this artist. Maybe you would also like this other artist, you know, things like that, I think can be really fun or whether it's that, um, you know, I always kind of bring it back to financial institutions when you and your bank can anticipate a need that you have when they sort of say we we're guessing that you might be thinking about this. And so, you know, here's an offering that's that's targeted, that's timely, those types of situations, I think it can can work really well. 
where it can be more off-putting is if you feel like you're being sold to, right? Is if you feel like there's somebody who has, you know, they're, they're kind of eyeing you up and they're like, well, we know all of these things about you. And we know that you're probably about to go to Home Depot tomorrow and buy X amount of tools because we can see that you've just made this other purchase over here. And that's where it can start to feel a little bit creepy. And so, you know, I think that's really the balance, right? These, when it can offer this seamless experience, when it can offer something that, you know, presents a choice to you or gives you something that says, Hey, we think you might enjoy this. Then it can be really helpful. You know, that soft touch is key when it's more overbearing, when it's something that is a little bit more forceful or a little bit more unexpected and maybe not as, as good, right? Maybe the recommendation is not quite in line with what you actually want to do. That's where it can start to be a little bit problematic. And that's where you, you, you can leave that bad taste in your mouth. And that is such a fascinating summary of all the the, the the opportunity and the wonderful potential of AI and the challenges, right? When it's seamless, when it's serendipitous, it's wonderful. And when it's talking to you or selling to you, it can be, uh. but right. I want to go back to what you first said about the intelligent matchmaking of the meeting. That itself mm -hmm. sounds like a billion dollar idea because who, which person in the world or listener to this podcast mm -hmm. wouldn't want intelligent meetings with actually people that you value. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you do that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, from, from our standpoint, it's fairly straightforward. You know, as, as a user, you would go in, you create a profile, you list out, you know, this is who I am. This is what my background is. Um, and then you create a series of tags about yourself. You know, this is how I want to tag myself. And then, you know, you get on the next page, you get kind of a, a, a you know, here's who I'd like to meet type of, of page. And so you can start to pick through. I'm interested in talking to, you know, people um, about this subject matter. We actually go a level deeper than that. It's not just what subject matter, but it's sort of which side of the conversation are you on? Are you looking, you know, are you a fintech who's looking to connect with bankers? Are you a banker who's looking to connect with fintechs? Are you a venture capitalist who's looking to connect with, you know, anybody working on this, uh, in this space? Are you an analyst or somebody else in the industry looking for that hot scoop? Um, and, and so are you just kind of looking for, you know, the, the, this very specific fintech founders, there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can sort things and personalize it. And then the system on, on the back end just, you know, starts to create meetings for you. You, you, you set up, you know, I've got two hours or however long you want to spend. It can kind of plug in time for you. And then, you know, it's as simple from an attendee standpoint of just showing up. So, you know, when we were doing so events live, I'm, I'm oh, a guy ahead. who's out there trying to sell something. And I look at this, I have my two hours. I filled up my tags. I say who I want to speak to. And basically the system says, meet this guy, meet this guy, whatever it is. And it gives you the location inside your conference. I mean, yes, I wish we were back at physical conferences, but that day will come. Yes. And similarly, if I'm a bank, I actually see my schedule and it's all out there populated. Just turn up, have your chat and go on. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Basically. So the live event experience, which we'll be getting back to at Finnovate fall this September, we will be able to bring at least some people back in, you know, we're still working with the city and everything, uh, city of New York and the local governments there to figure out how big of an event we can actually do. Um, but yeah, how it worked, you know, you, you would just get a notification. Okay. Your, your four fifteen is waiting, go to table 20 in the networking space. And so you would go there and have that meeting. And then, you know, at the end of it, and, and you can decide, you know, do I want 15 minutes? Do I just want to have, you know, 10 minutes? There's a lot of customization that, that you can, in ways we can set it up. We've kind of standardized on 15 minute meetings. That seems to be um, you know, really effective, but we're actually trying a format now uh, with three minute meetings where you just get a bunch of rapid fire three minute meetings really quickly. And, you know, so the onus is, you know, you have to come to those conversations prepared. You have to be ready to talk about what you want to talk about, but 
Um, you know, in three minutes, you know, generally, if you want to follow up and have a deeper conversation with somebody. So, you know, we're, we're kind of playing around with a lot of different time increments. Really, the, the end goal is all just about making that connection, letting people meet the right types of people. And of course, just like anything else, isn't it? It's an imperfect tool. You know, there are going to be and, times when you meet and with do somebody. You follow and, through. and Greg, do you follow through on that stuff? Does the AI or the data actually come back and say, okay, we set up these meetings for you. Do you ask people which ones of them were useful? And you have some learning that says, okay, you know, these kind of things work better than other things, in, you know, in which meetings turn out to lead somewhere. Uh, well, the data that we track is more around which subject matters are most appealing. You know, we'll see which groups people, which, which groups are most selected, which types of technologies are most selected. And as you can imagine, that's really valuable information for us because it helps us keep our uh, finger on the pulse of the industry. You know, what are people really interested in talking about? What are they interested in connecting about? So that type of data that we get is really helpful as we plan future programs, as we plan uh, networking spaces. And of course, we're continuously updating the subject matters that we have that are available for you to meet with other people about. So um, that's really where we get mo the most useful data. Um, we are, of course, interested in the raw numbers, you know, what types, how many attendees actually, or how many of the meetings actually happened. Um, and what we found is that the meetings that are scheduled through this platform tend to be really likely for people to follow through and connect with them. And I think it's because they've kind of gone out and, and said, you know, this is specifically what I'm trying to do. You know, it's a lot easier to get meetings to happen when both parties are really invested. They've both got something committed to the idea. So that's, that's where we've seen it be really effective for ourselves. No, and uh, I'm going to come back to this a little bit later, but I think it's fascinating because I think one of the biggest problems that people have in the world is too many meetings, too many meetings that don't leave anywhere. And if Finnovate mm -hmm. has actually built something to better match make the meeting process, I think you guys are sitting on a unicorn idea of your own. You should spin this off a separate company, but we'll come back to that. Um, getting to your core area, what Finnovate does and what you've been doing for, for many years now, which is, um, you know, the banking industry. And you recently, Greg, wrote an article on FinTech Futures about your seven-year-old opening of a banking account, which is fascinating, right? Because this is what bankers yeah. have celebrated about. Can I get it if the baby is born? Can we open a bank <laughs> account? And your son told us a lot about what we should know about banking from, you know, from your article. And could you tell us, for example, today, what are the trends that you're seeing about you know, what people are looking for? Because this whole idea of a relationship between the bank and the consumer seems to be changing because it's no longer a bank sometimes that you're dealing with. And, yeah, um, you know, what, what, what do you think are the things that people are looking for uh, in this whole relationship between banking, which is very necessary, banks may not be, and consumers? Well, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I think, you know, the, the first thing that really struck me, so first off, for anybody who's wondering, I didn't pressure my kid to get a bank account in any way, shape or form. This is one of the things that we've been living together. He's been going to school right next to where I've been working for the past year, which I'm sure is true for a lot of you out there listening. Um, and so obviously, clearly it rubbed off on him. And he came and said, I really want, a, I want my own bank account. And what he really wanted was um, you know, a physical card. He wanted to have his own debit card. Um, but also he wanted to feel like he was a part of, you know, the world that I, that I work in and live in. So um, from that standpoint, I think it was really good. Um, so when I, when I took him, you know, I was really curious because here's somebody who's completely new, completely green to the banking system. And so I wanted to make sure I captured his thoughts because I mean, this is a unique opportunity for somebody, their very first experience. And what was really surprising was that a lot of what he was saying are things that we as an industry kind of already know. You know, we understand the importance of 
um, you know, the, the priorities for Graham where he wanted to have you know, personalization. He wanted to be able to choose the exact card that he had. He was really pumped about being able to do that. He wanted something that he felt was unique and personal to himself. Um, he really, the, the idea, um, and we kind of set this up and I didn't invent this, but you know, the kind of three bucket children's banking system of, you know, spend, save, share. Um, he really was fascinated by the, the share side of it. You know, he, I think he's been, you know, reasonable saver. He's seven. So, you know, he's not like uh, super disciplined <laughs> with his money, but, but when I, when I told him, like, you can, cookies. Right. Yeah. It's, it's popsicles. It's the freezer aisle at the grocery store that uh, if you can make it through that without spending money, that's always a, that's, that's a good day. Um, but, but I was telling him, you know, you can take some of your money and you can set it aside to donate to something that you're really passionate about. Um, and he really enjoys uh, red pandas. We have some red pandas at the Seattle zoo. He loves them. And when he kind of made this connection, like I could donate money to, you know, the world wildlife Federation and actually help keep animals in their habitats. It really resonated with him. And again, this is something that we know, right? We, we, there's so many studies out there, so much research that says that, you know, the younger generations in particular want to feel like their money is doing something good in the world. They want to feel like that, you know, they're, they're a part of a, something bigger than themselves and they're able to have their money create a positive impact somewhere else. And so for him, you know, to be able to do that was really exciting. And, and again, this is not something new, but this just kind of emphasizes this point. You know, if you look at where we, you know, we talk about what customers want, high level of personalization is key, high level of social impact, being aware of that is really key. Um, the other one, which I thought was really interesting was I asked him, you know, what do you anticipate? Um, you know, why do you think it's easier to pay with a card than with cash? And he said, I can't make a mistake. You know, I don't have to worry about giving the cashier the right amount of, of cash. You know, for you and me, this is not really a big concern at, at that level. You know, you, you can pull a 20 out of your pocket and, and be, be confident. But for him at seven years old, this is actually something that he was thinking about. You know, he doesn't want to do something that's potentially embarrassing in front of somebody else. And if you extrapolate from that and look at, you know, people want their banks to offer them some kind of safety net to protect against the ability of, of them making a mistake, whether it's an embarrassing mistake or whether it's something that's more sinister, you want to have this feeling that there's a safeguard, there's a rail in place that's going to keep mm -hmm. you from doing something that, that you really don't want to do. And so, you know, I, I look at that as well. And you think, um, again, that particular example, maybe not as, as relevant once, once people get older, but, you know, how many people struggle with what the financial industry considers to be kind of basic financial health, whether it's saving, you know, budgeting appropriately, people have difficulty in this area managing their finances. And a lot of them simply have never been taught, you know, don't know the best practices. But there's real value for a financial institution who's able to anticipate those potential problem areas and say, you know, actually, we can help you avoid making that mistake. We can make sure you're set up. So, you know, those are those are just three of the ones that uh, that came out of that conversation. And again, none of that's brand new, but it was really interesting to have those reinforced by somebody who hadn't heard about any of them and, and was coming into it with a completely clean slate. Well, uh, Greg, I think what is fascinating for me as you're telling the story is that your son seems to know something or he seems to be reading Harvard Business Review because two of the five <laughs> new P's of marketing are personalization and purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as the consumers want that and you think your son's displaying that at an early age. And um, I think all brands and all banks and everybody else needs to wake up that this is what consumers want to do. But coming back to, I think, how technology can enable these things. You know, we talked about the personalization aspect. We talked about the purpose. 
Now, do you see, and, and I think you deal with a fascinating thing because you're in between. You talk to banks and you talk to fintech. Now, which mm -hmm. of these people, which of these two industries has more grasped the problem and the, I would say the opportunity that technology is providing to change some of this stuff? And can you share us some examples of what you think, um, you know, uh, you know, are fascinating ways in which people are using data, algorithms, technology to solve the personalization or the purpose problem, if you will. Yeah, so I think it's it's a you know it's I'm going to try and avoid painting with too broad of a brush here because certainly when you look at you know banks as an entity in and of itself you know banks and bankers there's so many different kinds of financial institutions and there are people within um, in roles within banks you know whether they're major multinational banks or smaller community banks anywhere in between who I think really understand the value of of these pieces but you know I think it's pretty clear that the fintech side of the equation is spending more time looking at, you know, especially personalization, right? And, and, and it's more so the ability to, you know, how you go about doing that, I think is, is something. Um, and also I think the types of people who tend to be attracted to the FinTech space, you know, you largely do that because you see a hole somewhere, you see an opportunity somewhere. Um, and, and so that, that can make you want to, to get engaged. But we hear a lot of FinTech companies who, really look at the, the customer as the first and foremost uh, piece of, of the puzzle. You know, I, I was talking to um, Uke Pleiter, the CEO of Backbase, and they, they've been a fun story for us. We sort of watched them grow. You know, I remember them mm -hmm. being at my first Finnovate back in 2010 and to where they are now is it's incredible. What a journey that they've been on. And we're really happy to have been part of their story. Um, but but Uke, you know, in, in my interview with him, uh, he said that the customer for them is their North Star. That's the thing that they always think of. Now, what they do is they build products which are very attractive to banks. They're very easy to use by banks. But by elevating that customer to that top piece, it makes it a lot easier for them to um, you know, make these crucial decisions when, when they come up. And, and you know, gives them again, that guiding light. So I think, and they're certainly not alone in that. There's a number of other companies that we see who are doing that very well. Um, when you get to the kind of more social responsibility side of things, here's where I think you see fintechs really starting to pull away from, from some of the banks mm -hmm. that, that we have. You know, I think a lot of people um, look at the financial system that we have and look at you know, the way that we give out credit, the way that we you know, help people uh, manage their money, move money overseas, all of these pieces, and look at the inequalities that exist there. And I think you know, from a fintech standpoint, there's companies who've seen this massive opportunity um, from a business standpoint, a massive problem from a social standpoint. Um, and, and I think they've done a lot more of trying to really push and fight for that. Now, the good news is there are a lot of banks who are now starting to really hear that message and starting to push forward. So, you know, I think over the next couple of years, you're going to see a little bit of a split in the banking industry between companies who really have heard that message, who understand that message and companies who maybe haven't as much. Um, but, you know, the banks that allow people to, you know, tap into this kind of social responsibility angle, I think are, are the ones that are going to be in a really good position because we know that, you know, the younger generation, you know, this under 30 group, even under 40, maybe depending on where you want to draw your generational lines. Um, there, there are, this is a significant motivator for them in terms of who they want to do business with, where they want their money to be, what they want their money to be doing when they're not using it. Um, and so, you know, I think that again, there's, there's people doing really strong work on both sides. In my experience, you know, a lot of these issues are being driven by fintech innovators who are kind of pushing things forward 
and, and a lot of banks really kind of need that push. They need the industry to move and to sort of force them to, to catch up or else they risk kind of falling behind everybody else. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned several fascinating things in that, Greg. One of the things you talked about is this whole area of payments and how people are trying to do more payments and move, whether it's cross-border or even within, you know, within between businesses and co companies and so on. And this is obviously a massive area of both uh, technological explosion. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. on the one hand, you have the consumer place like Klarna who's saying, you know, they built the you know, final pain later revolution. You had Stripe, says I'm building a new backbone. You have Zelle, Venmo. And now you have WhatsApp and Signal trying to even Signal's trying to get into this whole area of payment, right? I'm not asking you to pick the winner, but <laughs> what's your take on the whole area about because most of these depend on two things. One is they depend upon the convenience uh, of, of like you know how easy they make it to pay, but they also depend upon actually understanding the consumer enough to say this is exactly what you want and let me give that to you. Could you share some light or shed some light on what do you think are fascinating uses of technology that you're seeing in this space? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, the first thing is from a user standpoint, I think users are to some extent provider agnostic when it comes to um, which, you know, I don't think they have a lot of brand loyalty in terms of how they want to move money. They, they have functionality loyalty. They want it to do what it should do. They want it to do it quickly and well. Beyond that, you know, I don't think they really care too much, you know, and, and most of the people that I talk to kind of outside of my uh, professional life, um, they'll use Venmo when it's easiest. They'll use Zelle when it's easiest. Um, and, and I think there's an opportunity for other brands to, to get involved in the, as well. But I think ultimately what it's going to come down to are, you know, there, there's institutional advantages that you can get when you're Zelle and you can, you're automatically inside the gate of a lot of financial institutions mm -hmm. that right there reduces a lot of friction. And, and that makes it really compelling for customers to use it because it's simply the easiest option. You know, there's the least friction option. Venmo is another really low friction option. It's very easy to, to use it. Um, the fees are pretty reasonable from a consumer standpoint. And so, you know, again, a lot of people are, are gravitated towards it. I think when you look at the future of that space, it's really difficult to pick who the winner is going to be because, you know, what, what I expect to happen is similar to what we saw, you know, with kind of social media networks, there are going to be a lot of competing products that look very similar. And so, you know, what's, what's the difference between a Facebook and a MySpace, right? How, how does one of these end up becoming a, a, a gargantuan? Geez, that was tough to say. And one of them becomes a punchline for, for late night hosts. Um, and, and so you know, I, think, I think that's really where, where we're at right now. I think, and, and what, what difference it is, it comes down to you know, the, the number of people who start to use it, you know, just the sheer snowball effect of the more people who use it, the easier it is, the more frequent it is. So the more you need to have it too. Um, and, and then the other side of it is it comes down to, you know, how these brands position themselves, how they market themselves, how they're able to, you know, generate that excitement and that enthusiasm to really resonate with people. Um, and, and so, you know, you look at, there's a variety of ways that you can do this. You can, you, you look at the, the uh, success of Alipay and you think, well, mm -hmm. I mean, that's difficult to replicate in a situation where you can't say, Hey, you're all using this now that's a pretty good advantage to have when you're trying to grow users pretty quickly. Um, but you look outside of that and you think what's going to, you know, how does Venmo defend their position at this point? How do banks who, who look at Venmo and say, how come all these, you know, we, we need to fight back against this. There's too many people holding money inside Venmo. They should be holding that money in our accounts. How do we go back and try and, and fight for some of that sharing and get some of that back? Um, 
And, you know, the way that they can do it is make it really easy, make it really smooth. Um, and, and then just mark it like crazy, you know, cause I think it really does come down to you know, creating that belief, creating that uh, idea that you're not the only one who has this. You don't want to be the lonely guy trying to pay through, you know, you don't want to be the person who's downloading their music on the zoom when the world has moved on to the iPhone. Um, and so that's, that's, I think where we're really in danger right now. Um, uh, for a lot of those brands, you have to be really conscious of the fact, you know, how do I stay on top of the pile? How do I continue to anticipate those customer needs? And how do I make sure that everybody who uses it is happy using it to the point that they tell their friends, this is the one, this is the one that you got to have. This is the only one I want to pay you on from now on. And, and I think, you know, what you're talking about is a fascinating thing. You mentioned customers in the context of Backbase, and then you talked about, you know, having more users and anticipating needs. In some ways, if you have more data, you can anticipate needs better. And to have more data, you need more customers. Mm-hmm. And is this what is leading, uh, you know, and, and I think it's a great thing that everybody's trying to grow and say, I'll get more customers. But is this what is leading in the fintech world to a very particular thing, which is that the race to acquire more data and that more customers who can give me more data is leading us to a, a kind of a path where we're doing things that are sometimes right, but also a whole lot of stuff on data privacy and, and you know how you're tracking people that is not necessarily the the nice side of the story do you have mm-hmm. anything to share on how people are you know what you see as the dangers of this whole of this of this whole side yeah well i mean certainly the dangers of, of holding data are out there for everybody to see you know you look at the the breaches and um, how public they are how damaging they are to a company's reputation um, and you know, it, it's, uh, for a long time, I think there was this idea. I want to just try and acquire as much data as I possibly can. I think everybody mm-hmm. on all sides was trying to acquire as much data as they possibly could. And then, you know, over maybe the last couple of years, I've started to see this, uh, this other idea emerge, which is, I don't want to be responsible for your data. I don't want to take that on. And so, you know, I actually heard somebody at Finnovate Fall a couple of years back having a conversation and saying, how long do I have to keep that data before I can get rid of it? Which is a question that I never in a million years thought I would hear. Mm -hmm. But from his standpoint, he's like, data is a liability for me. You know, I'm not in the business of holding data. I'm not trying to analyze it. I'm not trying to use it for AI. I'm trying to you know, use anonymized data and then move on. And I want to just have everything be as, you know, I want to hold as little as possible. And so I think that's really the question that, um, you know, everybody needs to be asking themselves right now, you know, do I want to be in the business of holding data? And if I am, what am I doing with it? That's going to make that worthwhile because there's massive risk associated with it. So there has to be something else on the other side to balance that risk out. And if you as an organization don't have a plan for, you know, I want to use this data to do this, you know, we think we can build something new, we can plug it into an AI algorithm and and have it do something fun for us. Then if you're not able to find value there, then I think the, the motivation is actually on the opposite side to try and hold as little data as possible, try and keep it, you know, under in cold storage, keep it away from uh, any possibility of getting hacked because the, the potential downside is very real. And there are financial brands which really struggle to recover and, and to regain trust after an episode like that. And they live long in the memory. You know, I think as, as consumers, yep. when you hear about something like that, it leaves a scar. And you can hear somebody mention a company, you know, uh, even now when somebody brings up Target, and this is many years old at this point, I still think yep. of the breach that they very publicly suffered 
through yep. no real fault of their own. And again, they're not in the position of holding data. That wasn't something they were trying to do, but they, they got uh, really punished for, um, yep. you know, through, from a variety of areas for, for making that mistake. So, you know, for me, I think that's really what it has to come down to, you know, this question, it's, what are you doing with the data to make it worth holding it? Because you know, people say data is the new gasoline and that's true, but gasoline can explode. So you got to be really careful. You got to make sure you know what you're doing with it. You know, that's such a fascinating thing because I've never thought about it like that. I always go and ask CEOs and all that and they say, oh, we have a lot of data. I said, what are you doing with the data? Are you getting any return on that data? But I think you are also bringing up a very fascinating thing. There is a cost to holding data and there's a cost of not just, um, you know, of compliance, there's a cost of the explosion and the, it's like nuclear fuel in a way, right? Mm -hmm. So, and, and I don't think people talk enough about that, but you know, that's probably a, a podcast by itself. I'm just yeah. going to go a little bit, a little bit into some of the things you mentioned, you started off at the beginning by saying the algos you don't see and credit mm -hmm. scoring is one of those things that consumers don't see, but it affects our life in fundamental ways. Right. I mean, you know, your FICO score in the U S is something that pretty much determines what you will get and not get. Right. And mm -hmm. as you're seeing more and more AI that's being used for credit scoring, you know, loan available eligibility, the personalization of the option, whether it's the interest rate, the tenors, et cetera. And the two kinds of emerging consensus out here, and both are probably true. One is that it's faster, it's more accurate. It actually enables more people to get credit. On the other hand, it's biased and it perpetuates the existing bias of the data set or the individual doing that. So what's your, uh, what's your take on where yeah, you know, the utopian credit future, the dystopian credit future, whichever it is. Any examples you can share where AI is going to take the, the, the lending business? So I think I'll, I'll start by saying, I think we're already in a dystopian lending situation. I think that the situations that we have and the way that we look at credit worthiness is fundamentally flawed and, and it's archaic. It's based on things which don't have a huge amount of relevance. If you look at credit scoring, as trying to answer the simple question, will you pay us back? And that's really what it is. Mm -hmm. it's, it's trying yep. to answer this basic question, will you pay us back? And I think if you look at the system that we have in place and you look at you know, recent history, it's not too hard to say that we do a really pretty bad job of, of anticipating who's going to pay us back, right? This is, you know, the, we, and we sort of just accept this. We accept this risk that it exists here. We accept that, you know, we can do the best we can, but we still know there's going to be, you know, X number of defaults and we build that in to all of the models and everything like that. And, and, and I think this is where it gets really difficult for, for banks to move beyond that because, you know, that knowing a system is broken is one thing. Replacing it with a system that's better is another thing altogether. Um, from my standpoint, I look at what's possible now from an artificial intelligence capability. And you see you know, people who are applying AI tools towards this question, will you pay us back? And they're looking, they're able to find a huge number of metrics, which are much more closely tied to how likely somebody is to pay you back that are virtually ignored by the current uh, credit and scoring systems. Could you share some um, examples, Greg, because this is so fascinating. And, you know, I, I like yeah. what you said. I till now thought that the system of credit scoring was what it is and it is okay. And you just described it as dystopian. <laughs> Not a lot of people do that. Everybody thought it was utopian. So I'd love to get into a little bit more specifics on what do you think of the new ways in which people are actually finding out these metrics? I mean, it's such a fascinating sure. area. Sure. So, I mean, if you look at what the current credit system does, it ignores massive portions of the global population. 
people who through no fault of their own are just categorically excluded. We're blanket denying huge swaths of the population. You know, inside the U.S., um, there are massive numbers of people who uh, struggle to um, you know establish credit because they don't have somebody who can sign on to that first credit card. They don't have a co-signer somewhere, right? This is one of those areas where you know if you uh, if you have a privileged background, your parents can help you establish credit at an early age, then you're off and running. You know you can get uh, you can start to you know get this documentation, this this credit history going really quickly. If you don't, it's so difficult to catch back up. Um, and, and so, you know, there's a company that, uh, has won best of show a couple of times at Finnovate called Neener Analytics, who mm -hmm. really looks at this question, you know, are you going to pay us back? And what they're finding is that they're able to dramatically expand the types of people that a bank can safely lend to without incurring massive amounts of additional risk by looking at other factors, um, and, and the ways that people answer, uh, you know, fairly common questions. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think um, I will be the first to say, I don't, I'm not privy to exactly what's going on in the background, exactly how that algorithm works, but you know, they, they're able to look at a lot of people that the current credit system blanket ignores, just blanket denies, and are able to make this, this group available and dramatically expanding mm -hmm. a bank's potential customer base but more importantly, getting people to a point where they have access to the to basic banking services, where they can start to do things. You know, you, you, when you uh, when you get a, your, your paycheck, that you can actually deposit it without losing seven percent to a check casher. Or if you need mm -hmm. a short term loan, you can do it at a rate that's not you know thirty three percent. So. You know, and I think I want to come back and just kind of defend my uh, dystopian statement a little bit more. You know, if you look at the population of the world right now, um, and you think, you know, what percentage of them are potential customers for banks? Do you think it's more than half? Do you think more than half of the global population is a potential lending risk? Because because I don't. I and if you look at that system on its face and say, you know. Um, and, and I'll be clear here. I don't have data that suggests, you know, that this is kind of based on gut feeling. But, um, but if you look at it and say, you know, we have a system right now where there are literally billions of people who are prevented from accessing any credit whatsoever, that to me is a major problem. That's mm -hmm. that's a gigantic problem that needs to be solved. And if you come to me and say, you know, I can tell you right now that no one in this group of let's let's be conservative. Let's say two billion no one in this group of 2 billion is trustworthy. None of them are going to pay us back. I'm calling you a liar. I'm saying there's no way that that can possibly be true. And, and given that you, we have a system that you really dramatically or dramatically overvalues where your parents have come from and your credit worthiness of the people in your life dramatically undervalues how credit worthy you as an individual are. And that to me is where there's a really significant so problem. Greg, it's so fascinating to listen to you. In fact, I don't think your dystopian thing needs any defense. I just felt, felt when you used it, it shifted my mind immediately because <laughs> we tend to take the system for granted and say, oh, this is disruptive. But actually, it's not. What you're saying is the present is not actually right. And anything that can improve that is better. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's such a good example of how AI can do good for the world because here it is. I mean, risk is always measured through data. A credit decision is using data. You're saying people are using alternative forms of data to make that lending decision. And to me, it's one of the great uses of AI, if I can actually find that. And also develop models, I guess. You know, today nobody has a model to say if I lend 100, 
you know, to 100 people in this group, will they pay it back? So you need to start the process. And I think that's what you're describing. Uh, Greg, Greg, again, you know, conscious of the time out here, and I want to talk about something that you mentioned. I'm going to go back to your son and social impact and purpose, as you call it, right? Mm -hmm. um, here's another fascinating use of AI that we're hearing a lot about and, you know, just wanted to get your take on it. Uh, you know, obviously, and you know, ESG guidelines are becoming very important for companies worldwide. And now there's apparently a machine learning algorithm that can measure whether a company is meeting its ESG standards. You know, hedge funds are starting to say, are you going to be, you know, having positive impact on the world and so on? What do you think of this whole use of data to actually measure things like purpose? And where do you think, what do you think of this whole thing where um, ESG standards are being, I mean, data is being used to measure whether you're do, actually doing good for the planet? So I, I applaud the idea. I think that it's a really good idea. And I think it's good to start looking at the actual metrics, something that you can quantify and really get to you know, demonstrate how companies are doing when it comes to fulfilling their promises in these areas. Um, now that said, I think the real challenge comes from the idea that, you know, what is good, right? This is something that is going to be a different definition for every individual. And, and my concern is that if you look at something, you, you get this type of uh, governing body that says, you know, we can have this data that says, you actually know you're, you're good. You're doing what you can do from ESG standpoint, um, that it, you know, there's the real danger that it ends up limiting the upside. You know, it, it, if you get kind of, if you establish a minimum bar, then a lot of companies just have to get over that minimum bar and we lose the companies who are really going for, for it up top. And, and so, you know, I, but I think when I look at it, this is something which I think people feel on a personal level. You as a customer have a view of the organizations that you work with and, you know, how socially responsible they are to you might not be how socially responsible they are to somebody else, depending on a wide variety of factors. So, um, you know, I think that it's a really personal piece. Now, I haven't spent a ton of time studying uh, this tool and, and what's possible. If it really uh, is able to kind of push everybody to get to a minimum bar and, and, and it's, uh, you know, gives us this kind of data, then great. Um, what I, I just, I just hope it doesn't turn into one of the situations, you know, we've seen uh, the way this is kind of factored when it comes to like environmentalism in the past, when there are various licensing agencies that say, you know, we certify this as a green product. What does that mean? You know, what is a green product exactly? Or, you know, we, we certify gonna... this as carbon neutral, you know, again, this is all getting into this thing. You know, how do you really uh, delineate so, that? Again, you know, I'm going to go and I think, you know, I'm going to go back to your idea of the sun and, you know, the way you started this thing about Finnovate. Why wouldn't companies let their customers actually decide what is good and let them vote for their feet? Because, you know, again, you looked at what you said about in you know, the way you do matchmaking today. Yeah. Um, if your son is a customer and there are a million of them who want to support the panda, shouldn't a company right. actually be saying, you know, I could do this. You don't need another body or a standard necessarily, right? You should be able to find a way where data uh, is actually used to guide some of these decisions of what is good because what, what is good? What is good is what people around the world think it is. Uh, again, yeah. I think that's probably a, another rabbit hole that we could go down yes. to. But uh, Greg, just to wind up, I think we've talked about, you know, where fintech is going, where you're seeing, uh, you know, banking, the industry going, uh, and a few key AI-led innovations. Any one or two big predictions where you think data and AI is going to take us in the next, um, let's not worry about 10 years, let's say in the next three <laughs> or four years. Sure. Well, I think, uh, and, and that's a great place to, to end it, you know, and so from, from my standpoint, I think it was, 
maybe 2016 that I saw the first AI play on the Finnovate stage, the first like kind of purely AI play. And then by 2018, you know, in my kind of back of the envelope math, uh, it was about half of the, the demoing companies were using AI in some way. And, and there was this shift away from kind of, we can use AI to, we are using AI to solve X. And I think that's a really important shift in the industry because AI at its core is really just a tool. It's not a result in and of itself. It's a path to a result. And so I think that you know the, the future of the industry as it relates to AI is going to be application-based. It's going to come down to where there really are uh, problems that need to be solved, where it makes sense for uh, AI to get involved. And the honest truth is it's probably going to become an ever-present. It's going to underpin just about everything that we see. Um, and then, of course, the question becomes, okay, well, where does that data come from that feeds into it? Because that's the really crucial piece of the equation. And you know, flawed data produces flawed AI. And there's a really clear line between these two things. If you put biased data in, you get biased AI. You know, there's all no 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 shortage of amusing stories about AIs that have been trained yeah. to act badly in any number of different ways. Um, the the hard part is coming up with one that's you know, bias free, if we get the right data set, I suppose we could, we could imagine that happening. But at the same time, I think, um, you know, this is really what is going to define the success of these AI plays, the quality of data that you have, the ability to understand and clean and, and make this data usable um, is going to be extremely important. And, and now we're seeing at Finnovate, a number of companies come up and start to support these ideas that say, you know, we can help you take the data that you have and make it more usable. I think there's going to be more of these kind of data support, data cleaning types of plays, because I do see AI really, you know, being uh, underpin, underpinning a huge amount of different types of technologies over the course of the next couple of years. I mean, it's already happening. There was maybe, yep. maybe we took a little bit of a step back during the pandemic where people focused on some more, you know, urgent problems, but I, I don't see any, any reason that, um, you know, this, this trend is not going to continue. And I think pretty soon we'll be, you know, companies that don't use AI, I think will probably be in the minority, um, at least in some extent. You know, when you get to the point that event organizers are using AI, then everybody's using AI really <laughs> at the end of the day. No, but I'm looking forward to the day. Uh, I'm looking forward to the day when your son turns 18 and he's able to not even walk to the bank, but they've anticipated everything and say, here it all is. We know what you need to do and, you know, and kind of provide you all of that service on, on your little smartphone or a biometric chip. Mm -hmm. And that day is probably going to come. Um, like I said, we can continue talking a lot about this and I'm sure we'll have you back on the show again. Uh, we have Greg Palmer, FinTech columnist, podcaster, vice president at Finnovate Group, a connected man who makes connections in the world of FinTech. Thank you very much, Greg, uh, for being on Slaves to the Algo. And uh, Slaves to the Algo is available on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you enjoyed this week's episode, don't forget to rate, share, and subscribe. Stay safe in the age of COVID. Stay relevant in the age of AI. Thank you once again, Greg, for being on the show and see you all next week. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, Suresh. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Slaves to the Algo, please rate, share, and subscribe. Visit crayondata.com to find out more. See you next time.